Well, is this really all there is to life? Is this really all there is to life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Or perhaps it's been a question that you've been prompted to ask as maybe something significant has happened in your experience. Is this really all there is to life? It's a question I asked myself, if I'm honest, uh, about six months ago, whenever I'm sure you all heard the tragic news of the passing of a really famous basketball player called Kobe Bryant. Here's a guy who has everything you could ever wish to have. He's got money, he's got achievements, he's broken records, he's got millions of followers on Instagram and Twitter, he's got a lovely family, and just like that, it's all taken away from him as he dies in a freak helicopter crash. When things like that happen, we're provoked to ask the question, is this really all there is? And as we think about that question that I'm sure you've asked yourself, Daniel chapter 2 can be really, really helpful for us. I'm sure you'll remember where we left off the story in Daniel chapter 1. The people of God and Judah have been invaded by Babylon. They've been taken into captivity in a number of waves. The first wave happened in chapter 1 and we were introduced to a guy called Daniel and his three friends who were enrolled in a special Babylonian training program spearheaded by King Nebuchadnezzar to try and assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. Yet in spite of the ups and downs of chapter 1, we saw that when life doesn't make sense, God is still faithful to his people and faithful to his promises. And now as we come to chapter 2, we see another uh, up and down kind of roller coaster of events. Um, so I want you to see six things that really happen in this chapter. Here's the first one. First thing we see is an uninterpretable dream. An uninterpretable dream. King Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne. He's about 30 years old at this point and his power is immeasurable. He's quite simply the most powerful man in the history of the world at this point. Uh, think of some of the most powerful people in our world at the minute. Maybe Donald Trump, the Queen, Vladimir Putin. Add them all together, you're getting a little bit closer to the power of King Nebuchadnezzar at this point in the book of Daniel. But even though this guy Nebuchadnezzar is extremely powerful, he's got a really basic problem at the start of chapter 2. And it's this, he cannot sleep at night. He cannot sleep at night. And the reason he can't sleep at night is because he has had some sort of disturbing dream. And so as we open chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, we discover that King Nebuchadnezzar is deeply disturbed by this dream and is desperately seeking someone to interpret the dream for him. And so the first thing we see, an uninterpretable dream. But second thing we see is an unforgiving punishment. An unforgiving punishment. I'm sure in the past couple of months, uh, many of you have done countless numbers of Zoom quizzes. And one of the quizzes you might have done on Zoom is a riddles round where someone gives you a riddle and you have to try and interpret what the riddle is or what the answer is. Let me give you an example. What needs to be broken before it can be used? The answer is an egg. Or what always goes up but never comes down? The answer is your edge. If you're anything like me, you're not too good at riddles. For me, the pressure of riddles on Zoom quizzes is a little bit too much. But I want you to imagine that you're not just having to answer a riddle in a Zoom quiz, but imagine someone's actually holding a gun to your head and saying, give me the interpretation of this riddle or I'm going to kill you. Imagine the pressure you'd face then. And that's kind of like the pressure that these guys in Babylon face. These magicians and enchanters and sorcerers, the guys mentioned in verse 2, they face astonishing pressure because King Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had this disturbing dream and I need you to give me its interpretation and if you don't, I will kill you. But in fact, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just need the interpretation of the dream. You'll see in verse 5 that he seems to have forgotten the dream. So he needs these magicians, enchanters and sorcerers both to tell him what his dream was and then interpret it. It's a massive request. 
And if they don't do it, look at the end of verse 5, look what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, you shall be torn from limb to limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. This is a very staggering request from King Nebuchadnezzar. And these magicians, enchanters, the creme de la creme in Babylon, they pretty much simply say, this cannot be done. Verse 7, they plead with them, at least tell us what your dream was, King Nebuchadnezzar, and then we'll attempt to give you some sort of interpretation. In fact, these magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers really put their finger in the pulse as to the problem that Nebuchadnezzar faces. Look what he says in verse 10. They say this, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. They're actually pretty bang on. King Nebuchadnezzar's problem is that he's searching for human wisdom when what he really needs is divine wisdom. Isn't that a problem that we often encounter ourselves? We seek human wisdom when what we truly need is divine wisdom. Where in your life right now are you seeking merely human wisdom when you need to search for divine wisdom? Where you need to truly search and look to God? Maybe it's in your broken relationships and you try your best to mend them, but what you really need is God's intervention. Maybe it's in your evangelistic efforts where you're trying to make your technique of sharing the gospel really precise, but what you really need to do above and beyond everything is to pray and ask God to, to break down the barriers in people's hearts. Maybe it's in your future plans. You try and map it all out yourself, but you actually spend very little time praying and asking God to help you and guide you and show you the way. An uninterpretable dream, but secondly, an unforgiving punishment. If you do not tell me the dream and its interpretation, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I will kill you. But notice thirdly then, an unqualified prophet. An unqualified prophet. Things in Babylon at this point are probably about as hopeless as they could be. King Nebuchadnezzar has brought in the creme de la creme. None of them are able to tell him his dream or interpret it. And so it looks like everyone in Babylon is about to get slaughtered. All hope seems to be lost. Yet, up steps Daniel. And you kind of think, who's Daniel to step into a crisis like this? Little old Daniel is only a teenager. Yet look what he does in verse 16. Look at the audacity he shows. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. This is staggering. I want you to imagine that Lord Sugar, one of the greatest businessmen in the UK, is having real trouble, financial trouble with his business, and he calls in all his CEOs and all his financial advisors and auditors, all the best guys in the business, to come and try and find a solution, and they can't find a solution, and all hope is lost, and then he hears a little knock on the door, and in steps this 15-year-old from the local high school. He's only there on work experience for that week. He's maybe in fourth year at school, and he says, hey, I know all you guys are the creme de la creme of this business, but uh, why don't you give me a week to sort this thing out? Can you imagine that? How crazy would that be? Yeah, that's kind of the, exactly what's going on here. Little Daniel steps in, and what does he request? He requests that Nebuchadnezzar give him time. That's the very one thing that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't willing to give to the creme de la creme, the magicians, the enchanters, and the sorcerers, yet he's now seemingly willing to give it to Daniel. What on earth's going on here? Has Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind? Well, no, it's just yet another example of God moving, not just in the hearts of his own people, but in the hearts of even his enemies, the kings and queens who have set themselves in opposition to him. God works in Nebuchadnezzar's heart to allow him to do the unthinkable, give this menace Daniel a shot at the most unlikely thing he could ever wish to accomplish. And so we see an uninterpretable dream, an unforgiving punishment, an unqualified prophet, but fourthly notice, an unlikely hero. Against all the odds, 
Daniel is going to be the one who's able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what its interpretation is. And this isn't because Daniel's some sort of fortune teller, but it's because Daniel's God is the one who was able to supernaturally reveal it to Daniel. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel isn't special, but his God is. And so he tells him not just the dream, but also its interpretation. And Daniel, as a result of this, just bursts into praise. And you can see this little song that he sings in verse 20 to 23. And as you look at the words of that song, notice how keen Daniel is to give God the praise for what he has done. In fact, even when Daniel approaches King Nebuchadnezzar to tell him the good news, that he's got the interpretation of the dream, wouldn't it be so tempting for Daniel at that point to kind of go, King Nebuchadnezzar, I figured out the dream. Maybe you should give me a promotion, take care of me. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 27. He's still king that King Nebuchadnezzar knows that this was all God's work. Look at verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Skip your eye down to verse 30. And once again, Daniel will acknowledge this was not my work. This was God's work. Look what he says. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that he may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel says, there's nothing special about me, but there's something very special about my God. And you know, that's true of you. I wonder, do you think to yourself, I'm not gifted enough. God could never use someone like me. Well, just as this story isn't about Daniel, let me humbly say to you that your story isn't about you. God is the one who empowers his people. All the strength that we need to fulfill the purposes that God has for our lives is found in his strength, not ours. And so we see next in the story, fifthly, an unveiled explanation. In verse 31 to verse 35, Daniel starts telling King Nebuchadnezzar the contents of his dream. It's quite a strange dream. It involved a large statue and it had a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and thighs of bronze, etc., etc., and then it's hit by this little stone. This little stone emerges out of nowhere. It's one which verse 34 says was cut by no human hands. And it hits the statue, it topples it over, and then the stone becomes this large mountain which fills the whole earth. What on earth does this mean? Well, Daniel gives King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation, really, from verse 36 to 45. And the start of the interpretation would have sounded really good to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, that head of gold, that's you. Because you're in charge of the world right now. You're the most powerful king in control of the most powerful empire. But, Daniel says, the chest and arms of silver, one day, that's currently an inferior kingdom, but one day it will supersede your kingdom. It will topple you over. But then one day that kingdom will be superseded by another inferior kingdom. And that's what history is going to be. It's just going to be one kingdom overtaking another kingdom, which will one day be overtaken by another kingdom. And it's going to keep going and changing and changing and changing and changing and changing. But then one day, another kingdom, which starts looking like this little stone, looks very inferior, is going to come and it's going to topple all kingdoms. And it's going to invade and fill the whole earth. And this is a kingdom which verse 44 says, will not be destroyed. What kingdom is this? Well, this is God's kingdom. This is God's eternal, imperishable kingdom, which will have humble beginnings, but will invade the whole world. See, what Daniel is trying to do is to humble King Nebuchadnezzar and show him that above and beyond all earthly kingdoms is God's eternal, imperishable kingdom. And it's the one that is ultimately steadfast and ultimately secure. 
Do you know there are very few things in our world right now which we can point to and say, that's secure, that's steadfast. No job seems secure. No business seems secure. Even churches don't quite seem so secure. We live in a fragile world and we are fragile people. Yet the one thing which is steadfast and secure is God's kingdom. And so what would be a wise investment of your life would be this. Invest your life in God's kingdom. How do you need to reshuffle your priorities this week and your diary this week to reflect that? Everything you give for God's kingdom will not be wasted because God's kingdom is eternal and imperishable. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so we've seen an uninterpretable dream, an unforgiving punishment, an unqualified prophet, an unlikely hero, an unveiled explanation, and sixthly and finally, an unimaginable reward. Well, upon hearing the interpretation of his dream, King Nebuchadnezzar does something quite staggering in verse 46 and 47. He literally falls on his face before a 17-year-old Daniel and professes that his God is the one true God. It's a staggering response. It's quite like someone like Kim Jong-un today falling on his face before a 17-year-old apprentice and confessing that the God of Christianity is the one true God. It's a shocking response, but it's the necessary response of the news of God's coming kingdom. But perhaps the question you're asking upon hearing about this vision and this stone which symbolizes God's kingdom, which is going to take over the entire world, perhaps the question you've got is this, when is this going to happen? Well, for you and I reading this passage in the year 2020, in one sense it's already happened, and in another sense it's yet to happen. In one sense it's already happened in that that stone which became this big mountain, which inaugurated God's kingdom, that's already happened in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ inaugurated the coming kingdom of God. Here's what that stone was foreshadowing. Remember verse 34, the stone would be not cut by human hands. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. He would come not by human endeavors. He was born by means of a virgin birth. God sent him supernaturally into our world. And so he started just like that stone from humble beginnings, born in a stable, yet his kingdom would grow and grow and grow and grow as it started like a mustard seed and grew to take over the whole world. To the point where today, millions and millions of people from every tribe, tongue and nation profess Christ as Lord. The kingdom has been inaugurated. And so you sit in a privileged point in history as you live this side of the cross. But even though the kingdom has been inaugurated, one day it will be consummated. At the second coming of Christ, it will be consummated to the point where not only will one king in Nebuchadnezzar bow before him and profess that the true God is the God of the Bible, but Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God's kingdom has been inaugurated at Christ's first coming. It will be consummated at his second coming and it will last for all of eternity. And so that prompts me to ask you the question, are you investing your life in this kingdom? Do you know your school will not be here in a million years' time? Your favorite coffee shop will not be here in a million years' time? Your favorite football team will not be here in a million years' time? Apple will not be here in a million years' time? Microsoft will not be here in a million years' time? But you know what will be here in a million years' time? The kingdom of God. Because it's eternal and it's imperishable and it is well worth staking your life on and investing your life in.